Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast and our extended Diamonds Are Forever discussion, the first of our two special interviews on the very special film. And I, of course, am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, who do we have joining us this week? We are talking to writer Oliver Buckton, who uh, wrote The World Is Not Enough, the biography of Ian Fleming. He's also um, edited a new collection of essays together called The Many Facets of Diamonds Are Forever. And he is an English professor at the uh, Florida Atlantic University. So he's someone who has um, a certain amount of insight into the spy world. He's written also books on spies on film and espionage on film. So someone with a lot to say about the films that we cover on this podcast. Yeah, when we were putting together the coverage for Diamonds Are Forever, first of all, we didn't expect to have the guest that we've got coming up next. But we wanted to maybe come at it from a different angle than our usual interviews. We want someone who was a specialist on the film with a unique perspective. And yeah, we, we stumbled across Oliver's book, which we discussed with him in the interview. Um, so I think without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now to talk all about Diamonds Are Forever is Professor Oliver Buckton. Hello, Professor. How are you? Hi, Scott. Uh, I'm, I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, our pleasure to have you. And yeah, we really wanted to sort of expand our view of Diamonds Are Forever. So, I mean, as, as I said in the intro, you've written a couple of books about Bond, so I, I definitely think you are the man to ask. But I think to take us back a little bit, just to set the table, what interested you in Bond and Ian Fleming in the first place? Uh, uh, just the, um, the, the the excitement, the love of adventure, the the thrills of the the, the Bond films. Actually, the first Bond film I saw was at the cinema was Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, so um, that's probably a factor in in why I wanted to do a book on it. Um, but you know, my dad my, took me to see that film, and and uh, the rest was sort of. A matter of course, I just fell in love with the uh, the whole world of Bond. You know, the lifestyle, the travel, the some of the humor, um, the gadgets, uh, and then I started reading um, the novels, and I, I really enjoyed the novels too. And um, you know, I probably read them first in my teens, and um, only much later did I think you know this was something I would actually write, uh, write and publish about. Nice. Now. I would be very curious to know, you watch Diamonds Are Forever first, and then you go and read the books, and I would imagine continue on through the journey of watching the movies. Did your relationship with Diamonds change? Because it is quite different than a lot of the Bond canon. Mm. <clears throat> In terms of the book, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is interesting. It, it feels like, like uh, Ian Fleming wanted to take a sort of change of direction, you know, having written the first three uh, all with, um, with, with, you know, with Smirsh, the, the, the Soviet spy agency, uh, as the central villain or the, the, the organization for the cent- for the main villains. And, and then he, he, he wanted to try something different. So it's, it's an anomaly in the, um, it's an anomaly in the sense that, you know, there is no Smirsh, that the, the villains are these sort of American gangsters and it's about diamond smuggling. Which is something that Ian Fleming was fascinated. He was fascinated by smuggling and, um, you know, also obviously sort of wealth, you know, and diamonds, gold, you know, you name it. So uh, it also is probably the most American focused of his of his novels. I mean, even though Live and Let Die was, uh, you know, was set partly in the in the U.S., 
um, you know, really Diamonds Are Forever was, was the novel that really uh, was more of an American-based story. And I think that was a departure as well. Uh, I also think it was uh, perhaps a, even a step forward in terms of the, the, you know, the Bond girl, I mean, the leading woman being Tiffany Case. I think she's a great character in, uh, in Fleming's canon. And um, so, yeah, it, it, was, it, it was different. I, didn't, I wouldn't say I read the novels exactly in order. Um, you know, I was sort of reading them as I, as I bought them. I remember two of the first ones I read were Goldfinger and, uh, and Moonraker. Uh, which I loved in, in very different ways. And what about the Diamonds movie? Because, you know, the other films are quite different than that one, which is much more overtly comedic. Did, you mm. know, you see that one first as, you know, a kid and it really grabs you and makes you a Bond fan. But does your, the way you look at that movie change as you see some of the other films and the more serious takes on the character? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, it is, I didn't realize it at the time, you know, how, how, how different it is. And I think, um, particularly if you watch them in sequence, you know, following uh, the kind of uh, the sort of high seriousness in many ways of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, you know, obviously the tragedy uh, that, that, that that novel, of that, that film, which is very closely based on the novel, um, you know, there was, and the fact that it was Lazenby, George Lazenby only made one Bond film. So it was kind of a turning point, I think, um, yeah, in terms of the, the comedic, you could even say the kind of campy quality that uh, I think then was 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 um, very present for the for the 70s, you know, as Roger Moore took over. And I think it's interesting that we probably think of Sean Connery as the more serious Bond, you know, in the 60s, and Roger Moore as maybe the bit more campy, a bit more um, light light humor. But I think Sean Connery started that 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 pattern with with Diamonds Are Forever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, as a, as a kid, I probably didn't really process it in that way, but. Certainly, you know, looking at it more critically, uh, I would see it as a, as, a, as, a, as a turning point in the way that the Bond films uh, were trying to appeal to a, perhaps a broader audience even. So before maybe we get a, a deeper dive into the book itself and the other books you've written as well, um, sort of as Cam alluded to in the last question, you know, Diamonds Are Forever was made 1972, 71 off the top of my head? It came out in 71. 71, thank you. And so... It's been a long time since that film came out, 50-odd years. Has your opinion on Diamonds changed since then? Uh, yes, it has. Um, I think it's, 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 I mean, it's certainly, I, I, I've, I see more in terms of how, how, it was, how it was changed from Fleming's novel. Um, you know, when I saw the film, I really just experienced it as a film. I think when you look at it in comparison to the novel, um, a bit more critical of it, I think, in the way that it, you know, it, it completely changes the, the structure of the story. It introduces Blofeld as the villain. It has this whole, you know, space laser plot of, you know, the diamonds being used to hold the world to ransom. I mean, more in line with the kind of the, you know, the, the megalomaniac Bond villain. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I see it more as a, uh, you know that the it, it also began a pattern where the films were less and less um, close to Fleming's novels um, because with *Live and Let Die*, you know as well, they they made a lot of changes to to Fleming's novel, and I think throughout the seventies, they you know they took more and more kind of license with with, with the sources. Um, but I think that you know the film is, is is valuable in terms of I think it is a very it's kind of like a a time capsule of you know. Uh, popular American popular culture in the early 1970s 
and the kind of things that would appeal that now seem quite dated. I mean, from, you know, the whole, oh, I don't know, just the car chases and the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the gay, the gay hit men, you know, Winton kid and some of the stereotypes that the film uh, deploys, I see them as a kind of a time capsule, you know, that uh, uh, it reminds us of what the world was like then in some ways. Wait, so just, wait, I haven't read the book. I have to put my hands up to it. Are you telling me there is no martial music or lunar buggies in that book? <laughs> I, I'm afraid that's true, Scott. Uh, um, gutting, there, are, there is, there is, um, there are, they do, there are two gay hitmen though. <laughs> uh, so Fleming was, um, was kind of breaking the mold in terms of, um, you know, introducing again, perhaps a stereotype, you know, of a, a homosexual villain uh, idea, but, um, that is there, but the moon buggies, that was all, that was all the screenwriters and the, and Guy Hamilton, who, you know, is, you know, is perhaps the greatest Bond director of all. I mean, you know, his, his, his resume for Bond is, is amazing, but um, he took a lot more, he made a lot more changes in this case. Well, you wrote a book, a biography on Ian Fleming called The World Is Not Enough. And, you know, you have studied him you know, a lot more than most and, you know, read all of his novels as well. Mm. Do you think he would have appreciated the adaptation of Diamonds Are Forever? Would he have appreciated it? Yeah. Um, I think he would uh, in the sense that, first of all, you know, Fleming was, was obsessed with getting a film deal for James Bond. I mean, it was, if it, apart from, writing the spy story to end all spy stories which is his original goal you know he realized that just from an economic point of view you know he couldn't make a lot of money uh from writing and that was a big disappointment to him um but he realized that you had to make a film deal a to you know get the rewards he felt he deserved and b to reach the kind of you know to have the global success that he wanted so um in that sense you know the fact that a film films were made at all of um of bond was 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 a huge um, achievement for him and he um he wasn't that sort of uh protective in some ways of his of his fiction i mean he always claimed that he didn't take james bond very seriously he downplayed one of the things i write about in the biography is how much fleming downplayed his own skill and and effort as a writer he, he made it sound like he just kind of cranked out these novels you know on, on vacation in Jamaica and you know in my research I found just how painstaking he was in in research and in revision and writing and draft after draft you know it was he was a he was a I think he was a great writer and um but he himself kind of uh you know in a way I wouldn't say damaged his reputation but sort of made people made it easier to dismiss him you know as a writer so i think he would have appreciated the adaptation because he wasn't he didn't see his novels as sacred in any way you know you can't you can't change anything uh, and he did like he did come to like sean connery um you know although at first he thought he wasn't quite right he was a bit too rough and sort of working class scott you know once he got to know him he really um he really liked sean connery so i think any any connery adaptation would have would have he would have appreciated now, one thing that tends to be discussed in the Bond community is just how divisive Diamonds Are Forever has been. It can feature as people's favourite Bond film and some people's least favourite Bond film. It really does mm. skew the whole 25 
slash 27 films, depending on which list you read. What's your take mm. on why that is? Why has it, why is it so divisive for, for viewers? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think partly because, you know, some viewers prefer um, the more, for want of a better word, and a, bit, a little bit more serious, you know, spy films like From Russia With Love, you know, um, which, I, you know, I think was probably Connery's best personally. Um, but, you know, the, the, obviously the mood and the atmosphere are a bit more realistic and, um, you know, sort of Cold War espionage um, film. So I think the viewers who like the, the more serious uh, Bond films uh, would, would not like Diamonds Are Forever because it, it, it changes the formula. You know, it, it, it introduces more of this, this kind of frivolous and, uh, you know, absurd stuff like the moon buggy car chase, you know. And, uh, so it kind of breaks the formula. And then I think those who, who are Fleming fans, some might not like how, how much it changed Fleming's novel. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think the the kind of uh, the combination, you know, the, the combination of like the spy story with with the humor and the um, the great car chases. I mean, some of the classic, you know, um, Bond motifs are there, and so I can see why it would rank highly on on the lists of people who, you know, who, who see Bond as kind of escapist fun, right? I mean, which is a large part of what Bond is, or perhaps I should say was, <laughs> um, before Daniel Craig. Um, now, we also mentioned your book in the intro, um, The Many Facets of Diamonds Are Forever, James Bond on the page and screen. Now, this mm. is a, basically a list of a, a group of essays you've collected about Diamonds Are Forever. Mm. Um, and uh, basically what led me to contact you for this, this interview. But what prompted you to, to create that book? Uh, yeah, so... We, it started with uh, actually a conference um, that we put together some panels um, for the Southern, it's called the South Atlantic um, Modern Language Association. It's quite a mouthful, very, uh, it sounds very, you know, serious, but they embraced, uh, the, SAMLA is, as it's known for short, embraced uh, the idea of having, having some panels on James Bond that marked the anniversary of um, actually of the novel. It was uh, the 60th anniversary of um, Diamonds Are Forever in 19, sorry, the conference was in 2016. So we did it, we'd had a call for papers and we got some really great ideas for papers um, and, and the panels went really well. And so following that, I talked to my publisher. I'd recently published a book uh, called Espionage in British Fiction and Film, which is a, a sort of more wide ranging uh, study of the British spy novel and film going back to you know the 19th the end of the 19th century and and the publisher was interested in this idea of having a book just on diamonds are forever so <clears throat> we decided to or I decided to then invite some more um participants um including James Chapman who who you know of course wrote License the Thrill which is one of the, the major studies of the Bond films and to expand it, and, and then for the original conference, uh, you know, uh, participants to expand their essays. And um, it seemed like it's a good opportunity to explore, I think, a, a, little, a little bit of a neglected um, work, you know, and as you said, a quite divisive one, um, to show how much there is in this, no in this film and the novel that it was based on. 
Uh, so the, the the chapters are are you know are, are sort of equally divided between uh, discussions of Fleming's novel and discussions of the Ham Guy Hamilton fil Hamilton film. And um, I think it's uh, one of the one of the few full length studies of just one title. You know, what just one one title. And I think the advantage of that is we're able to go into quite a quite a deep dive into some of the interesting, you know, both the American setting and uh, the capture on the uh, scorpion, the significance of the scorpion, which is the, uh, there at the beginning of the novel and plays a role in the film too. So, uh, they, you know, it was it was wanting to do some of the in-depth case study of how how that adaptation works in 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 Bond films. Could you maybe talk just a little bit about the piece you wrote for the book on identity theft and intertextuality in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, as well as the Diamond Smugglers? Mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was already interested in Fleming, uh, the writer, quite quite deeply by this time. And one of the interesting things I noticed was how uh, he was, you know, right. He wrote Diamonds Are Forever, um, but that the, the novel was based on an actual smuggling case, uh, you know, actual smuggling. Um, case with um, the former head of MI5, uh, Percy Silito, uh, working for De Beers, the diamond uh, company, to try to dis discover and, and shut down the diamond smuggling pipeline in, in, um, in South Africa. So I was interested then in how Fleming kind of used a non-fictional, uh, you know, a real story, because he was by training a journalist and he was always on the look lookout for a good story, you know, um, how he used this story as, as the starting point for his fiction. But then reading into his nonfiction, how he actually wrote a book on the, di on the actual diamond case. Um, and, and I think this coincided with, uh, he, was work he was writing these for the Sunday Times and he wrote a, a series of chapters of when he interviewed um, this man called John Blaze or he, he created the, the, the pseudonym John Blaze for the main main character, uh, and I was struck by the fact that you know he had the same initials as James Bond, and that in some ways Fleming was was looking for a substitute for James Bond because by this time he was already becoming a bit disillusioned with with writing Bond novels, and I think we we see this very clearly in From Russia with Love, like where he he basically kills Bond off or or appears to have killed him off at the end, and and then of course he brought him back, but. He was he was getting a bit fed up. He was thinking, I'm not going to be able to make a get a film deal. You know, I don't want to keep on writing these novels that no one seems to really think are that good. Um, so he was looking for other avenues. So he wrote, um, you know, Diamond Smugglers as another outlet, uh, a nonfiction outlet. But I was interested in how both how he some of the parallels that he almost structures the, 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 the nonfiction book like a Bond novel. And it, in some ways it's even more like a Bond novel than Diamonds Are Forever because it does have this sort of Soviet presence that, that the smuggling ring is partly backed by the Soviet Union who wants to get these diamonds for you know, military and industrial purposes. So I was really looking at the kind of overlap between you know, the fictional and the non-fictional and how they kind of blur into each other, which I think is um, one of the interesting things about Fleming as a writer is uh, how, how skillful he was at, at nonfiction as well. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that sounds just fascinating. And I would love to know, 
you obviously write that essay, but you're also reading and over, you know, editing all of these other essays. Was there one in particular that when you read it was just kind of like that bombshell going off, like, oh my God, this is fantastic? Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I would have to say, I, I'm pretty sure it's actually the first essay in the book is the, the Scorpion essay, mm-hmm. um, because it takes a, a, a very specific detail of um, uh, by Elin Akhtimichuk is the, is the author. Uh, it takes a very specific detail of the scorpion that opens Diamonds Are Forever and has this amazing kind of naturalistic description. You know, Fleming was, I think, underappreciated as, as a great observer of the natural world. You know, we think of him in terms of technology and spies and, you know, glamorous travel and everything, but he actually has an amazing skill describing places, landscapes, and the natural world. And he has this very detailed, like I say, almost microscopic uh, description of a scorpion that is preying on a beetle and is then destroyed by a human. Uh, I just thought that was such a, a powerful image, but that the, the essay really unpacks this whole uh, image of Bond as kind of a scorpion uh, who is both a predator you know, and, and a killer, but is also as we see throughout the novel and throughout many of the novels are very vulnerable, you know, very vulnerable to damage himself. And is there's a kind of Fleming looks at the natural world as this kind of almost Darwinian, you know, struggle, life and death. And that's really the world that Bond lives in. And I think, so I think that essay really uh, hit, hit how Bond is, um, you know, is functions in, in the novels. Well, you know, you, you've put these essays together and you've released it as a book, but in the process of doing so, You've obviously read them a lot of times. You've edited them as, as Cam alluded to. But mm. what has that compiling done to your appreciation of Diamonds Are Forever? Has it changed your opinion on the film? Have you grown to appreciate it more or appreciate different aspects of it? How, how have you changed your perspective on the film? Mm. Um, yeah, I def- definitely changed my perspective. Uh, I, thought, uh, I, I thought a lot more about the, the portrayal of America in the, in the film. Um, and, and, and in comparison to the novel, I think Fleming had quite mixed feelings about the US. You know, in some ways he, he loved the freedom, he loved the sort of scale and the, and the kind of um, the excitement of, you know, places like New York City and Las Vegas and other, other places he visited. But he also felt sometimes it was a bit, maybe a bit crude or a bit materialistic. And I think those kind of, um, in the novel, uh, there's a lot more sort of satire, I think, of American society. And I appreciated that more through reading, say, Matt Sherman's essay uh, in, in the collection. Um, but then again, there's also in the film, there's a sense of, of excitement at Las Vegas and, you know, the, the strip and the car chases. And I think the film minimizes the satire uh, and, 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 and enhances the, uh, the sort of escapism, you know, of this sort of unreal world of, of uh, Las Vegas particularly. Um, and then I was also, it also made me really think more about the, the, the roles of women um, in, in, you know, part of my, part of my argument in, in the biography uh, is that Fleming, you know, is sometimes deemed a misogynist, you know, because he, he's sort of responsible for the idea of just the, the, the eye candy Bond girl, you know, who's, who's just sort of a sexual object. And um, I think that's true in some of the films, and I think the novels are actually the female characters are much more developed and much more complex than 
he's often given credit for. And so I think Tiffany Case is a good example. She's a very, she's a damaged character, but she's very strong and independent. And she's in many ways an equal to Bond. You know, she's not, she's not just a kind of toy. Uh, but I, I was really struck when Jennifer Martinson's essay about Tiffany Case, that the film uh, tends to kind of put her back into this role of the, you know, the kind of uh, sex bimbo, you know, as, as she calls her in the essay. Um, so I, it made me really, really think about, you know, the gender in, in Bond and how much of that is, is, is the product of the films, uh, but, but somehow then, uh, you know, assigned back to Fleming, uh, even though he, he had nothing to do with the film of Diamonds Are Forever uh, other than writing the book. And how do you feel about the shift from sort of the mob villains of the book to Blofeld being the antagonist of the film? Uh, I think it's part of the part of the mood of the film. I mean, it, the film is a is kind of um, a bit of everything, right? I mean, it's not it's certainly not the most tightly structured, uh, and, and certainly far from the most realistic plot. Uh, I feel like they've thrown in everything, you know, from the Bond films up till then, right? Um, and so it almost had to have Blofeld in it. And I do like Charles Gray's Blofeld. I think he's. Um, he has a kind of, a, he does a certain bit of levity, you know, he makes a few jokes as well, um, you know, about his makeover that went wrong and the, the, the twin cats, you know, the twin white cats that uh, Bond tries to use to identify the real Blofeld. Um, so I, I actually think the villains are not that successful in the novel. Um, if I had a criticism of the novel, it's that the Spang, Spangled mob, the Spang brothers are, not quite, um, not quite up to the par of villains like Le Chief and um, and and um, Hugo Drax in Moonraker. You know that mm -hmm. he he went off, he went a little below, uh, a little bit more kind of cardboardy and a little bit more stereotypical. Uh, so I didn't really have a problem that they they changed the villains. I, and I think, uh, like I say, I think they they almost had to have Blofeld in the film, and I think Charles Gray's Blofeld was was good. Now, if we're sort of beginning to wrap up our discussion on Diamonds Are Forever, I, I'm curious to you, it was the first Bond film you saw in the cinema as a kid. It's clearly an important film to you. You wrote a book about it. Mm. When you think back to Diamonds Are Forever, what image or, or sequence or line from the film, what's the first thing that, go, that sort of comes to mind? Oh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is Shirley Bassey's song. <laughs> You know, um, it's it's such a great opening. Uh, the whole, the, you know, and and of course she, you know, she was the most. Just as Guy Hamilton is is the sort of the the default Bond director in some ways. Shirley Bass is probably the default um, uh, singer. Um, so just that whole opening song, I think, is fantastic. Uh, I uh, I think I think the scenes in um, in Las Vegas, the the car chase scene. Um, even the, the, the notorious scene where uh, Bond's dr driving the car miraculously changes from, you know, once left to right, whatever, as it goes through this narrow alley. But that, um, a little bit of creative editing there, but um, the, whole, the whole Las Vegas setting, uh, the, the um, Lana Wood as, as you know, uh, playing, playing craps with James Bond and the whole, the whole kind of uh, mob scene in in las vegas i think those scenes really come stick in my mind as that's what i remember most from the first time i saw it and i think they've 
they've continued to, uh, you know, fix in my imagination. Well, I have to ask then, because Cam and I met in Las Vegas. So it's mm. a very important city to us. Have you ever visited and have you ever gone to Circus Circus and shot the gun at the clowns? Yes and no. <laughs> I have visited it. Um, I did, I'm afraid my only circus there was Cirque du Soleil, which I went to in, uh, um, I forget which casino, which, which casino it was now, but I went to a Cirque du Soleil show, which was fantastic, but there were, I didn't shoot any guns at animals. And I didn't, I'm afraid, do too much gambling. It was a conference, actually. I was, I was so excited that another organization I belonged to held their annual conference in, um, uh, in, in Las Vegas. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a trip. But yeah. You were too busy driving around on two wheels getting chased by police, clearly. Exactly. Yeah, I had to reenact <laughs> that scene. Um, unfortunately, I, there was no Tiffany chase, but um, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for, for chatting to us about Diamonds of Forever. Before I let you go, I am quite curious to just take, get your take on perhaps the state of James Bond in terms of the films right now and perhaps where you would like to see it go. Oh, wow, that, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, now that, now that uh, I, I've kind of, I alluded earlier to the, the idea that, 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 that the Bond franchise has changed so much during the Craig era. Um, and, you know, that, that obviously Casino Royale was really a rebooting of the series. And, and that, that kind of coincided with going back to the one Ian Fleming novel that had not been done, apart from the, the spoof version, you know, the David Niven, Woody Allen, everyone, mm -hmm. everyone. Um, <clears throat> the, the, you know, the, to, to go back to the, where it all began. I mean, Casino Royale is a, you know, is, is a great spy novel. And it had to be done properly, and I think they did an amazing job. So, I but I did I do feel that you know they they got into a very dark territory with uh, Craig's Bond films, and um, there was so much emphasis on him being, you know, vulnerable and and kind of damaged and and tortured in various ways, both physically and and emotionally. Um, I think they lost some of the kind of fun of James Bond, if that makes sense. And I think maybe mm -hmm. it's a sign of our times, you know, that we, we obviously have so many global issues and crises and they've, they've adapted, you know, they, from kind of the environmental disaster to, you know, um, intelligence, uh, corruption. Um, they tried to stay relevant. Um, and I think I, I've, I think Daniel Craig was 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 a great James Bond overall, um, but I think there was probably nowhere nowhere further to go along that line. So I think whatever I think there has to be a new reboot. I guess is what I'm saying, mm -hmm. um, because you know clearly No Time to Die ends with Bond that Bond dead, um, and unless there's some you know miraculous you know kind of a uh, Sherlock Holmes over the Rickenback Falls, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, a miraculous uh, salvation. But it felt to me like um, that was the end. You know, that was the end of the road for that kind of stage of the of the Bond franchise. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, could could there be a female Bond? Um, obviously, we had the female 007 in, in in No Time to Die. Could there be a 
a black Bond, you know, I think all these are, are possible. I think, you know, Bond has always kind of pushed the envelope in various ways. Um, but I also think that it's tried to stay within what, what people will find, you know, what people will buy into, right? Because it's got to appeal. It's got to appeal to a mass audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that whether, whether the mass audience would accept that, that type of, you know, a female Bond, um, that's for the producers to decide. I, I don't, you know, I think, uh, but I do think there has to be a new direction um, because I think the, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, the really dark and uh, going into Bond's past and everything, you know, the, the dark histories of Bond and, and his, uh, his, his torments, I think they've, they've kind of, they've sort of worked out that seam, if you like. Now, I have to ask, um, you know, your first experience was, was with Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever. You oversaw the creation of the book on Diamonds Are Forever. Is Connery your Bond? He, he is my favorite James Bond. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I, but I, I, like, I like them all in different ways. I mean, um, you know, it's funny because my... M- my wife suffers through endless reviewings of Bond films, <laughs> but there are certain ones she won't watch. She went, we're not watching Man with the Golden Gun. We're not watching, you know. Uh, I actually like Roger Moore as well. And I, so I don't think it's an either or. I think they both bring a distinctive, I think the Bond franchise has been amazingly fortunate with the quality of actors that have played the role. Cause I think, you know, they, they, they've been great. And each, each Bond brings a different style a different um, set of skills as an actor and a different, uh, you know, sensibility. But I think Sean Connery, you know, for me, the Bond films were a product from the 60s and that kind of cool 60s, you know, style, I think, is is Connery's. Um, he has, you know, that's his, 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 his forte. Um, so yeah, he, he is my favorite Bond, but I, I have to put in a, a, you know, a plug for George Lazenby because for a long time, I like many other people sort of skipped over on Her Majesty's Secret Service and probably um, thought he was just a terrible choice you know, as, as James Bond, particularly after Connery. Uh, but it's actually become one of my favorite of the Bond films on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think uh, you know, he, he does, I come to appreciate his, his performance a lot more uh, over the years. And um, I feel he's been, you know, perhaps now coming more back into, into that recognition, but yeah, it will be Connery. Cool. First. Well, I mean, we will have links in the show notes below to your James Bond books and your spy book as well. Hopefully we'll have you back on the show down the road to talk about a non Bond spy film, perhaps. There's yeah. Plenty of them. Plenty of them. Yeah. And I'd love yeah. to, I mean, uh, I, you know, I try to keep watching spy films whenever I can. And um, It's the one good thing for us. They never stop making them. So we've always got something to talk right. about. That's, that's, but uh, that's yeah, where true. can the listeners hear more from you? Social media, any particular websites you'd point them towards? Um, I've done a couple of uh, interviews with um, James Bond Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a talk with um, Matt Chernoff on, uh, on, on my uh, biography recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think uh, social media? I mean, I, I kind of post stuff on on you know about my books on Facebook. Uh, and other than that, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reviews of, of the biography. Um, it got reviewed in the New Republic, which was great. Um, got, it got picked as a, one of the best books of 2021 in Foreign Policy magazine. So um, those, the, the publisher's website has all that as well. It also, um, Roman and Littlefield, who published the biography, they have links to these various other interviews as well. Um, so. Perfect. Well, we'll put links to those in the show notes below. But again, uh, Oliver, thank you for your time. Thank you for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thanks for, for a great conversation. and I uh, really enjoyed the questions. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Professor Oliver Buckton, the writer and editor of the book, The Many Facets of Diamonds Are Forever, and the first of our two interviews this week on the film. Cam, I learned a lot from that chat. Yeah, I did too. And I thought it was a lot of fun to bring someone on who has really studied Diamonds Are Forever, both the the Ian Fleming novel as well as the film, because it's, you know, when we do these um, interviews, usually to correspond with a film, it's with someone who worked on the movie, who can talk about like the production details. But to talk to someone who's spent, you know, a lot of time as an academic analyzing the work and, you know, placing it within its context and also finding new avenues to explore it. That's just genuinely interesting for me to listen to and also for me to take part in that conversation. Yeah. And, and you know, as you mentioned, the people we have on usually are experts on the production and maybe working in Hollywood a lot of the time, but not necessarily experts on the topic. So this this is a lifelong Bond fan. He wrote a biography for Ian Fleming, but you know he has studied both the book and the film Diamonds Are Forever. So there's there's few people as educated as him to talk about the film. And fair play to the man. He he's not one of these people that spends their life looking at one subject and will vehemently defend it. He critiqued Diamonds Are Forever as much as he sent praise its way, much as we did in our review just the other day. And I think that was a, a really refreshing perspective to to hear. And also, it's genuinely fascinating to me that he has written this book about Diamonds Are Forever. There are books out there about the writing of, say, like, a, you know, the um, more recent Casino Royale or like kind of the big Bond films like Goldfinger, things like that. But to look at Diamonds Are Forever, both the film, which is, um, I would say, of polarizing quality with fans, and also the book, which... Um, sort of stands out, as he talked about in the interview from some of the other Ian Fleming spy stories, it's just a really interesting analysis to have because it's not kind of the common go-to material. Another thing I found interesting just about the chat was, you know, in the process of putting the book together, obviously you'd be studying the film a lot. You'd be probably watching it a bunch of times and reading the book numerous times too. And yeah, he reached out to these academics and put these essays together and obviously compiled them and edited them down or up. And, you know, we asked, what did you learn about the film? And a lot of people would say not much because I've seen it so many times. I feel like I know it inside out, but you know, he was given different perspectives on the film through the, the process of gathering these essays. Like there's one essay just speaking about the, the, uh, the scorpion yeah and the and just the, the imagery that it uses and that's not an angle most people would think to come at the film from but you know there's obviously content there that person wrote an essay about it and that really can change your entire you know perspective on a film i think at the time i saw 
the motion picture, Star Trek, the motion picture in the cinema. I hated that film until I saw it in the cinema and I saw it in a completely new light. And now I'm a big fan. So something like that can really change your perspective on a film. And as you said, you know, Diamonds are Forever is quite the controversial film in, in, in Bond fandom. Some people really stand by it and a lot of people hate it. Um, and I wasn't a big fan myself, but it's interesting how just a little thing like that can just change your entire outlook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Diamonds is a movie that I think we found on our review episode. It has a lot of elements that date it and make it more difficult to grapple with as we go forward into the next generation of Bond fans. You know, the next Bond actor is going to bring in a whole new fan base that didn't exist previously. And they're going to look to the past and they're going to probably look at Diamonds Are Forever and being like, huh? But a book like this, I think, helps underscore why the movie and the story that Ian Fleming wrote are important and not something to necessarily be tossed out with the bathwater when a new Bond rolls in. No, you're absolutely right there, Cam. And we want to thank Oliver for sitting down and, and chatting to us about Dimes of Forever. A lot of people would avoid chatting about this film. It, it can be quite contentious, as we have said. So um, we'll put links in the show notes below where you can find copies of the books that we mentioned. And um, Cam, who are we talking to later on this week? Yes, we are talking to Bruce Glover, the actor who played Mr. Wint in Diamonds Are Forever. This was a something of a dream interview that I never thought would happen, but here it is, folks. Well, folks, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us later this week and check out our Bruce Glover interview. But until then, listeners, how the hell do we get those diamonds down again? Mm-hmm. 